morning. It's hard to get a mask off without tearing your mic off, too. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Turn there. Uh, Today, our passage of Scripture is Psalm 22, verses 6 through 11. That will be our focus today. Um, And let me read that passage for us, and uh, we'll get started. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 11. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. We continue this Sunday in our series in the Psalms. And the text I have been assigned this morning is what we just read, Psalm 22, 6 through 11. Normally I get to choose what I preach on, but this was my turn and this is what came up. So uh, this whole chapter is written by David as an account of some events in his own life that we really don't have information about, but we also know that this is a messianic psalm, meaning this psalm is, desc- is describing events in the life, or in this case, the death of the Messiah, Jesus. There are many details in this psalm that were fulfilled either in the setting or in the actions of the people that were watching Jesus die on the cross. For example, later on in Psalm 22, verse 18, it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And over in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, in 1924, it says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So we learn from the apostle that, that this very thing happened that happened at the foot of the cross, and, and the they that David referred to ended up being these Roman soldiers who cast lots for Jesus' clothing. And then John tells us that they did so in order to fulfill David's prophecy in Psalm 22. As I said before, this is a lament for some event in David's own life uh, that has led him to suffer much grief and sorrow. As you read through the Psalms, you see uh, there are many very unpleasant things that David confronts in his life and in different events. And this this particular Psalm is is no different. It's a heavy Psalm. And the passage today is a heavy passage. 
And David in particular writes many of the Psalms from a place of lament and misery. And the 22nd Psalm is no no exception, but we should not look at that as a bad thing or as a reason to skip it and move on to something uh, more appealing. If we move on, we miss receiving what the Spirit of God is offering our souls as comfort. We miss the big picture. We miss how the writer is comforted in the misery by the truth about God. And more importantly, we miss how our Lord Jesus is comforted by the truth about his Father. The way that many of the Psalms are written has been described as giving the reader the the three things necessary to know in order to enjoy the comfort of salvation. Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. Notice the progression. But sometimes we only hear misery, and we miss what is intended to bring comfort. By God's grace, Jesus from the cross has us looking back at this psalm. As Alistair pointed out last week, um, when he preached through verses 1 through 5, Specifically, the fact that from the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice with the words David wrote in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though these words are David's wrote, these words that David wrote about something he experienced under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that he prophetically penned scripture about the suffering of our Lord on the cross. We can know this to be true, most notably because Jesus himself directs us to this psalm by speaking verse 1 as he hung dying. The words of David's psalm are actually a foretelling and description of the events of Jesus' crucifixion. If that is true, then these laments really belong to the suffering Savior on the cross. In the New Testament, we have the accounts of Jesus' agony on his cross and the actions of the people around him. They're from the viewpoint of the apostles, and as they look back on that terrible day. In the Old Testament, we have the accounts of Jesus' suffering on the cross from the viewpoint of the prophets as they looked forward hundreds of years to that day. But here... Here we have the accounts of his suffering and agony from the viewpoint of Jesus himself. In a sense, though written a thousand years earlier, these are real-time accounts. Our Lord pre-described his own death before it even happened. But as it was happening, if you can grasp that. So that is how we need to be looking at this text of Scripture today. Have in your mind that these descriptions are the real-time experiences of our Lord on the cross. Now then, we're going to look not at what his lips uttered as he was suspended above the mocking crowd, but at what Jesus' eyes saw and what his ears heard. what his soul felt while he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross as a propitiation for sin, not his own.
I want you to get the depths of humility our Lord condescended to on your behalf and my behalf. Motivated by love and the glory of God. Because 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he made atonement for sin. He satisfied the wrath of God meant for you and me. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. We come before you this morning, at this time, Lord, to hear the preaching of your word. And Father, we ask that you would draw our minds and our attention to the text, Lord. Draw our attention to our Savior. Lord, may our eyes be fixed on him. Lord, help us to set aside distraction. And though this is a heavy psalm, Lord, it has difficult things. Lord, may we see the joy in it, the hope in it. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. You are so faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this sermon, The View from the Cross, because after his opening words in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest is what Jesus saw from his viewpoint on the cross. With verse 1, he said it before he said it, but in verse two through eight, verses 2 through 18, he saw it before he saw it. He described it before he felt it. The first 18 verses of Psalm 22 give us, a very, give us very vivid accounts of exactly what Jesus' eyes saw, and what his ears heard, and what his soul felt. I'm not going to read out all 18 verses, but just the specific things regarding his experience. And notice the present tense of his statements through, through Psalm 22. He doesn't say, I was as if it already happened, but I am, because it is what is happening at the moment he's on the cross. Though it's hundreds of years earlier. He says, I am a worm. I am scorned, mocked, despised. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Dogs encompass me. Evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me, they gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus knew he would suffer these things and much more going in, and yet he laid down his life that you might live. 
I was afraid to go and get COVID-19 testing because I didn't want a Q-tip in my nose. This is our creator. He gave us life and controls the universe, and he died like this. My friends, there are a lot of religions in the world with supposed gods. And there is none like this. There is no other God who even claims to do what our Lord did for wretched sinners like us. This is an unbelievable thing for the God to do. True biblical Christianity is so different and distinct and set apart from every other religious system. And that is why people mock Christians and Christianity. This is a ridiculous thing to believe. The God of the universe letting what he formed with his own hands kill him so he could pay for their crimes against him and then reward them for simply agreeing that they are sinners, repenting and putting their faith in what he did. It's absurd. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The cross of Christ is folly to them. That is what Christ himself watched in the people that surrounded him that day. They laughed. They cursed him. He was nothing. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 6 in our text. But I am a worm and not a man. Is this Jesus having a divine pity party? Is he struggling with his self-esteem? Sure, he's feeling every bit of the shame of the cross as he's pinned there naked, lifted high for all to see. But that is not why he says this. To be clear, these are not words Jesus spoke out loud, but it is his own description from this psalm about the cry of his heart to God the Father. What is happening here is Jesus describing now, Jesus describing how he is viewed by the people. To the people, he is a worm. In their eyes, he's not even a man. When he says he's not a man, he, he doesn't mean that he was not actually physically a man. We know that he was a man like the rest of mankind. He had flesh and bone like the rest, yet without sin. But he was also fully God. He never ceased to be God. But why a worm? Isn't he the lion of Judah? Isn't he the lamb of God? Why does he choose this creature to describe his status in the minds of the people? Well, for the very reason that you might think, there's nothing lower. Spurgeon said, he felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, passive while crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. He selects the weakest of creatures, which is all flesh, and becomes, when trodden upon, writhing, quivering flesh, utterly devoid of any might except strength to suffer. This was a true likeness of him when his body and soul had become a mass of misery, the very essence of agony in the dying pangs of crucifixion. 
The scriptures say that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That he was a man that other men had to hide their faces from. They couldn't even look at him. He was so marred and beaten beyond recognition even as a human being. But why? He was bearing your griefs and carrying your sorrows. He was pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities, and what was placed on him was the chastisement that brought about peace between you and God. With his wounds, his wounds, you and I are healed. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Don't believe any foolish teaching that tells you that means you should have a lot of money. That's garbage. Church, this is the riches of eternal life with your Savior and every promise he has ever made for one of his children who will spend eternity in praise and worship of the King of Kings. There's perhaps another reason for the use of worm here. The Hebrew word used here is tola, which means worm. A worm in the Middle East, also known as the scarlet worm. The scarlet worm, the female, would attach herself to a tree, lay her eggs under her body, protecting them until they were hatched. The mother worm dies and secretes a crimson or scarlet fluid that stains her body and the tree This dried fluid was used to make red dye for clothing and even the curtains for the Jewish temple. But you see, the covering of the blood of the dying worm was necessary for giving life to the newly born. And this is the word that is used by our Lord to describe himself, and that is also a a picture of what the life that comes from a sinner who is born again, coming to life through the shed blood of Christ. The same word used and translated as worm is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe our sin. Our sins as tola, crimson, and how they will be made white by the sin bearer. This is the case in Isaiah 1.18. says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, skin, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Just that one word in this one use carries with it both degradation and salvation. We have a moment of one being the lowest, most despised creature, but accomplishing the most amazing and gracious act, the forgiveness of sins. But the passage goes on. David, and by extension Jesus, gives this threefold description of the way he's treated in in verses 6 and 7 in our text. He is scorned, despised, and mocked. Look at verses 6 and 7 in our psalm text again. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Scorned, despised, and mocked. 
He is scorned. This has the meaning of reproach. He was totally rejected by mankind. This is not just those standing at the foot of the cross. This is you and me, mankind. The same Hebrew word used here was used by God to describe mankind in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He was despised, seen as vile, worthless, regarded with utter contempt by the people, it says. And while he mentioned mankind before, encompassing everyone, the word he uses here has more to do specifically with the Jews, his own covenant people. John pointed out this treatment by God's people in John 1.11, saying, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was mocked, sneered at, and derided, ridiculed. He said, All who see me mock me. And he goes on to give examples of this mocking at the end of verse 7. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is the Savior's view from the cross. They wag their heads. You've seen this, and you've most likely done it. You see someone do what you think is just the most foolish thing you could ever imagine, and, and you have a physical response. And you curl up one side of your lip, you furrow your brow, and you, and you wag your head back and forth. I think we've all done that. This is the universal sign to show others what you think of this moron and at the same time elevate yourself, right? Perhaps even wagging their heads at their own stupidity because only days earlier these people thought Jesus was something special. I can't believe I actually followed this guy. Ridiculous. Look at him. So now for us, verse 8 begins to make more sense, knowing their attitude that this man is a fake. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, a thousand years ahead of time, and the the words of verse 8 are written by David, then the people and leaders unknowingly become fulfillers of this prophecy as they open their mouths in hatred towards Christ. And from the cross, he hears every cruel word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44. It's a gospel account of including this section of words that we see in Psalm 22. Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And this is at the crucifixion. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocking, mocked him, saying, He saved others. 
He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is their mockery of him. They knew who Jesus claimed to be. They saw his mighty power on display and healing and miracles. But they did not believe him. They're attacking Jesus' claims about himself. Their assumption here is that God is totally disinterested in saving Jesus from the cross. They don't believe God will actually bring him down. They don't believe Jesus can actually save himself. They sarcastically taunt him with his own belief that the Father delights in him. Well, maybe if, it would, maybe if he would do this or that, they would believe. No, they wouldn't. Luke 16.31, Jesus says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a tragic example of the depravity of man. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they are treating him this way. He gave them life. Do you suppose that your sin had nothing to do with his death? Or do you wrongly think you would not have mocked him had you been there? Our Lord sees every look of disgust, every hand gesture, every eye roll from the cross. That is his view from the cross. You know what he doesn't see from the cross? His friends. His chosen ones. His closest companions. For all had deserted him. Matthew 26, 56 says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. With this we see why he says, In the last five words of our passage today in verse 11, there is none to help. Look with me at verses 9 through 11 in our Psalm 22 passage. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Look at the change in verses 9 through 11. Yet you. Some of your Bibles say, but you. This is a change in focus for Jesus. It is a real redirecting of his thought. It's a remembrance. In the midst of the greatest tragedy ever, he remembers who his father is. This is not to say that he forgot. No, he is recalling truth to strengthen, to keep his thinking right because the view he had from the cross was not good. These last three verses in our text today 
are our Lord's recalling of absolute truth. What is he recalling? That the Father has been with him and in control since the very beginning. All of these next statements are a reference to the beginning. Where does life start? In the womb. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. And more than that, he sustains him at birth. He says, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. The truth Jesus clings to here is that his entire human life has been in the hands of God the Father from his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit to his humble birth to his 33 years of walking the earth as a man. In verse 10, he says, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. The point here is that he's saying in in everything, including the pain, you have been my God. None of the tragic things happening to Jesus are apart from God's plan. But the mind can drift from that reality in the midst of suffering. At the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 22, and Alistair covered last week, Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? And he says, why are you so far from saving me? And here at the beginning of verse 11, after redirecting his thinking, he comes back to Be not far from me. Why? For trouble is near. You and I need more yet use in our lives because trouble is near. Because our thinking gets skewed. Our our vocabulary and our thinking need to be rearranged many times. Our responses to life's trials need to be in this pattern. Lament is normal and needed, but part of lament is deliverance based on the truth of God's word and then gratitude for his care. I am in pain and suffering, yet you. I've lost my job, yet you. I've lost my child. my spouse, my friends, yet you. I am a sinner. Yet you. You have saved me. You have forgiven my sins. How does that help our thinking? Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Why must we continue to have to see our sins laid out before us? Why must we be confronted in the scriptures over and over with the suffering of Jesus? Because his view from the cross was of your sin. And because of my sin. My friends, because we must be brought low in order to see the matchless grace and mercy of our Savior in pardoning sinners. When we know how wretched we are, 
then we can be reminded over and over of the cost of atonement for our sin. We have to keep hearing this over and over so that we never forget how great a Savior Christ is. God is no casual acquaintance to the believer. The text says, you have been my God. He knit you together in your mother's womb and you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Even while the Father crushes the Son under his own righteous wrath for you and for me, Jesus is anchored by the truth that he has been his God. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Sin is real. But none of that means God isn't. None of it means God is not in control. If we're thinking wrongly about that, then we need this example and reminder from the view of our dying Savior. Turn back to him today. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, when Jesus said here that there is none to help, he meant there is none to help. But you, Father, be not far from me. It's a heavy song. It's a heavy text about our Savior's suffering on the cross. But I hope you can see the joy that comes because of it. Isaiah 55, 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. What an amazing God. What an amazing Savior. There is no other supposed God who would or could, or has ever even claimed to do what Christ did for us. Think about Christ's view from the cross, and all that he saw, and yet, for the joy set before him, he endured it. His desire was to bring many sons and daughters to glory, to bring honor to God. Close with me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. We hear these hard words. We hear this awful suffering of our Savior. The physical pain, the torture, the suffering, Lord, the, the emotional pain, the betrayal, watching those he created, mocking him as he hung dying at their hands. Father, we know that no one took his life from him. He laid it down, and he has the power to take it up again. And Father, we know that he did take it up again. And Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, he did this out of love for us. Lord, for anyone here who 
has not known salvation through repentance and faith in Christ, I pray today, Lord, that your word would just cut to the heart. For those of us, Lord, that have come to faith in Christ and our sins have been forgiven, may you remind us of that, Father. May we take the example of our Savior on the cross who who is in suffering and pain and crying out, but yet his thinking turns back to the truth, the truth of who you are. And for us, Lord, we turn and look back at what he has done, what he suffered on our behalf. And we know from your word, Lord, that it was enough. It was sufficient. It did the work. Father, anchor us in that truth. When we suffer, when we fear, when we have anxiety, may our words be, yet you. As we think about all the truth and all the promises in your word. Thank you, Father for your grace and your mercy and your salvation that's found in Christ alone. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.